0: Welcome back to the EnviroHealth Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Joseph Livermore, and in this episode we sat down with Dr. Leon Barron, Dr. Andrew Prentice and Professor Guy Woodward to discuss the release of chemicals into the environment and the risk they pose to human health and biotic life. So given the unique nature of this interview, I think we'd be best placed to do a simple round of introductions. Professor Guy Woodward, would you like to start?
1: I'm Professor Guy Woodward, I'm the Deputy Head of Department in Life Sciences at Imperial. My background is in freshwater ecology and I'm interested in all kinds of environmental stresses including chemicals and how they affect the natural world, so everything from genes through to populations of different species through to the entire ecosystem. So really understanding the impact side of pollution is my main focus.
2: I'm Dr. Andrew Prentice. I'm a veterinary surgeon. I spent the best part of 40 years in clinical practice, mostly with companion animals, so that's cats and dogs, in private practice and academia. I don't do that anymore. I'm involved with a, a number of environmental and sustainability projects, giving an adv- advice on the veterinary perspective on them. My name is Dr. Leon Barron. I'm a reader in analytical and environmental
3: sciences at Imperial College London. My interest really is in measuring chemical contamination in the environment, specifically trying to detect what types of chemical pollution is present and also monitoring that and understanding what risks it might pose in the environment.
0: So Leon, I thought we could start with yourself given your area of expertise. And I was wondering whether you could define what is chemical pollution and how does it occur? Yes,
3: yeah, so chemical pollution is really anything that occurs in our environment that is a is a is a molecule that isn't naturally occurring molecule or is is a naturally occurring molecule but it has been enriched in some sort of artificial way. So for example, it occurs mainly due to contamination from from waste, also usage of of, of chemicals by uh, the population at large. So for example, we often see traditionally chemical pollution being things like certainly in water, uh, it would be uh, fertilizer runoff, nutrients, uh, plastics and litter, sewage is a is a a, a new sort of a topic that is uh, really going high up on the on the on the on the list and then moving all the way through to more emerging types of chemical pollution including organic chemicals in our waterways that may be things like pharmaceuticals, microplastics, and so on. In the air domain, you can often see pollution like particulate matter that we breathe on a, on a daily basis. And it shouldn't be necessarily focused just on the organic space. We often see pollution that is also inorganic, and, and particularly I'm talking about things like metals. We often see metal pollution, which can be quite toxic in the environment if, 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 if not controlled.
0: So you mentioned fertiliser runoff, sewage, plastics, these are all things that we'll be familiar with. And I was wondering, where is the evidence base that chemicals are now a problem in our environment? So
3: the really important thing to note is that the number of chemicals that are being manufactured, designed and released is accelerating. So currently, the latest global inventory of chemical products or mixtures thereof stands at about 350,000 products. And that's quite a colossal number when you're a laboratory scientist like me to try and understand which of those are present and which ones are causing harm. And that's quite important. The evidence base here is, of course, chemicals are tremendously useful in our daily lives. They extend our lives. They protect our health. They also protect our environment in many ways, but there are some that if, if they are exposed in th- an unintended way may have impacts our environment. Now in recent years, certainly as technology has advanced in the laboratory, we've now began, now we can detect a lot more of these at much much lower concentrations in our environment. So really the scale of chemical pollution is starting to increase at least based on what we can measure and the number of substances that are being manufactured and available for everybody to purchase. So to try and put this in perspective, there are sort of uh, several planetary processes. This is a concept that came out of Stockholm University a few few years back, which essentially defines nine planetary processes for uh, harmonious life on Earth. And one of those processes is is climate change and we're clearly seeing an issue there whereby the boundaries or the thresholds by which the climate is changing is now starting to have a, a, an effect in our, in our in our environment another one is biodiversity loss and this is a a, a really this is really the next biggest challenge the ne- the third biggest one which is actually largely unquantified is the chemical and really it it requires a lot more understanding about what our chemical planet looks like. Where are we
1: in terms of the threat to the environment? So I'm happy to add a little bit to that, particularly the link between the biodiversity side and the chemical pollution side. So in fresh waters, just as an example, the ecosystem that I, I work on, it's been well known for a long time that pollution has been problematic. Since at least the 1850s, we've had problems in the, in the Thames which was essentially lifeless in the bad old days when sewage pollution was particularly high. We've seen in recent years some recovery from heavy sewage pollution in these urban areas and tighter regulation has started to lead to improved biodiversity, so returning species which had been lost from many of these areas, recovery of populations that were were rather suppressed. And we've also seen as these problems have started to ameliorate we're now starting to be able to detect some secondary effects, so other chemicals, which perhaps we weren't aware of at the time, we're now starting to be able to discern their impacts as these these prior stressors are starting to be mediated. So just as an example, across the UK, really for many decades, the main problem with chemical pollution, I would say, was nutrient enrichment associated with sewage and agricultural runoff, that really caused low water quality for many of our rivers and also standing waters. As tighter regulation has, has reduced those inputs, we've seen evidence of recovery in the long term. But more recently now, we're starting to have concerns about things like pesticides in our waterways. We've seen evidence of them having it across the food web. So not just impacting maybe the species that they're designed to target, but when they move into or run off into waters. We see this in insect populations, but also many of these chemicals magnify as they move through the food chain. So then we start to see collapses or losses of top predators, things like salmon, for instance, and of course the apex of the food chain in many of these systems is humans ourselves. So there are concerns about how these new chemicals are entering the environment how they're magnifying through the food chain, affecting environmental health for many species, but also human health as well.
0: So Guy, you started to explain how the Thames at one point in the Victorian age was essentially a dead river. And then you finished by saying that insects populations are being disturbed by a whole host of different chemical constituents that are now present in those environments. So then that, that kind of alludes to the fact where are we in a position where our water quality is getting better, or is it getting worse? Are we going back to the Victorian age?
1: So this is an interesting discussion, and, and actually, in the in the news and also the peer-reviewed papers, there's been a debate very recently, particularly in the UK, as to whether things have been getting better or worse, and there are different camps with different with uh, opposing viewpoints. I think in general, the evidence is that organic pollution associated with nutrient enrichment has been one of the master stressors, and that has alleviated. So there is recovery there. We see some species which are very sensitive to that type of pollution. Things like stoneflies are good indicators of very clean water. We see populations of those across the many parts of the UK starting to recover. But then in other areas, we're, we're, we're seeing decline. So the, the, the picture, I would say, is patchy. And urban areas in particular are a major concern because they receive cocktails of huge numbers of of chemicals. And in many cases, we're not really seeing recovery there. So the biodiversity is still suppressed in many of these areas. The Thames is certainly a lot healthier than it was in the Victorian age when the the pollution was so bad they had to even close the Houses of Parliament because of the, the, the smell emanating from the river. But it still has a long way to go. It's certainly not safe to drink, for instance. So yeah, just to add to that, I think you know one of the important things to remember
3: is that in London specifically, it was one of the first modern cities that built uh, a wastewater network. And what you might believe is that there's a whole chasm of underground tunnels around in in subterranean London that carry sewage all the way to east or west London where it's treated. But unfortunately, in 1858, when the Great Stink happened, when these wastewater networks were built, largely running along underneath the embankment in London, it was built for a population of 400,000 people. And largely, that same system is in use today for nearly 9 million people. And un- unfortunately, what that means is that it, it fills up when it rains or if we, if we use too much water, it can fill up quite regularly. And roughly once a week, the sewer network fills up and it has to be vented. It has to be released because if it isn't, it comes back onto our streets and onto our homes. So you don't really want to have wastewater flooding your And so the raw sewage or treated sewage or storm flow is released directly into the river. And sort of one of the recent statistics is it's about 39 million tons of raw sewage that enters the Thames on an annual basis. And that roughly equates to once per and that's that's quite a lot and and re- until recently most of the focus has been on london because of its its extensive uh, overflow network but this is actually replicated across other combined sewer type systems across the uk and so this overflow mechanism is really now a, a major concern here for river water quality and understanding how to protect it in the future
0: so we hear there of, of Leon's description of how the tremendous amount of different varieties of chemicals are released via sewage, et etc, cetera, etc, cetera, into our wastewater and into our, into our riverine systems. And I was simply wondering, how are these chemicals assessed and then prioritised in terms of their potential harm to both the environment and to potentially human health?
3: Okay, so every chemical that's manufactured, at least nowadays has to go undergo a strict sort of assessment procedure before it can be made and released and and that's called an environmental risk assessment and and in essence what that means is if you're going to start selling a a chemical at, at large scale you need to ensure that when it ends up in the environment that it won't have negative impact so the burden lies on the producer to generate evidence to ensure that that doesn't happen or at least the risks are minimized to a level that is acceptable and so what we're dealing with now is a sort of a system where chemicals are a little bit greener by design at least for that application however when something has been put through its application it may still end up in the environment and then because it's not really being used in that scenario for its intended application can have secondary effects that could be an issue and so in that sense it's it's my job for example to understand how great swathes of mixtures of chemicals are actually having an impact in our environment after they've been used so the waste thereof and so in that sense we we perform an environmental risk assessment based on on, on a couple of different criteria. The first one is we try to find out what the most sensitive species is in that environment and what is the amount of chemical that will basically knock it out. What, what is what is the a minimum, minimum concentration that will have an effect on an animal? And then the, the other side of the coin is um, what concentrations are actually present in the environment. And so from that, we can work out if a chemical is hazardous or dangerous and also based on the environmental concentrations, what the risks are associated with that, con- with that concentration in the environment for that specific chemical. And it has to be said, a lot of chemicals, even though they may be hazardous in the environment, have very, very low risk. So they, they're just not appreciable, in appreciable concentrations in the environment to have an impact. Whereas some are present in much larger amounts. A good example of that is caffeine. But it doesn't necessarily have a huge risk to aquatic life as a result. So the the real issue here is to prioritize the chemicals based on the reality, the risk of what they could do in an environment based on what we're measuring. The assessment of that for so many chemicals is actually quite difficult. and, And me as a chemist, I have to measure how much of that. In that equation, my job is to measure the environmental concentration of so many substances, which then can allow Guy's team and everyone else to understand what impact that has on the food web and the higher order impacts.
1: Yes, so just to add to that, particularly when we think about the impacts side of the equation there, there's a huge amount of effort that's been carried out for many, many decades in what you could call classical ecotoxicology. A lot of this would be laboratory-based with dosing particular species with chemicals and then to see what the impacts are on those species. So if you know how they perform in the laboratory, the idea then is you can use that to try and understand how they might respond in the field setting, in the wild Of course there are huge challenges there and I think that this is an area where we still have an awful lot of further work to do because what happens in the laboratory doesn't always translate directly to what happens in the wild. And one of the reasons for that is that in the wild you have a lot of different species interacting with one another through the food web and what is affecting one species might not be the chemical it might be its interactions with other species. And in many cases, that seems to be one of the strongest signals that we're picking up That when we translate from the field, from the laboratory into the field. When we're dealing with these more complex systems, actually picking up the direct link from the chemical to the ecological impact becomes much harder to discern. So we, we can calibrate our measures very effectively in the laboratory, Extrapolating to the field is the area that we, we are still have plenty of work to do in.
0: So extrapolation from laboratory studies to the field is incredibly difficult and something that's really not well understood in terms of both from a toxicological standpoint when, or an environmental standpoint. So I was wondering whether you could just explain how one does go about extrapolations from your tox studies.
1: Yeah, so I think that there are several ways in which you, you can approach this and you you probably have to do it from both directions. One is trying to get the mechanistic understanding of what is actually happening when an individual organism is exposed to a particular chemical. You can understand how it's affecting its biology and you can do that in the laboratory. And those responses are probably going to be manifested in, in the field setting as well. But what you then need to be able to do is to, is to understand how strong that response is relative to all the other pressures that, that species is feeling or experiencing in the field and that's particularly where you need to start doing experimentation in the field in the field setting so not just doing your experiments in the laboratory doing controlled experiments in the field where you dose ecosystems in a controlled way and then measure their responses the other way that you can approach it is using a statistical approach where you gather huge amounts of data and you look for associations between chemicals and species abundances for instance and you can do that at at very large scales ultimately then you you would be able to start to try and marry those up so that you can you can find the responses across many species and link those to the mechanistic understanding of what's happening with a few of your model species this is where you would start to then develop a more predictive approach to how these chemicals are affecting natural systems. At the moment, that bit in the middle is, is where we're investing a huge, amount of, a huge amount of effort, but we are seeing co- some consistent responses when we move up biological complexity into the, into the food web, for instance. We do see major drivers of the biology, such as temperature has a very strong effect and we see that the chemicals also have effects that we can track through the lab to the field but trying to understand the priority of those effects is the area that we're working on primarily at the moment.
0: So we've heard about how vast waves of chemicals are released into our environment and can impact the biota that live in these locations. What I want to do now is just focus down on a specific group of chemicals, biocides, and I thought, Andrew, this would be a great place to pick up with regards to what is the typical cycle of a biocide chemical after they have been discovered and approved
2: within the the veterinary, there are there is a, an agency within DEFRA, so Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, which is responsible for assessing whether or not met medicines that have been discovered are suitable for marketing into the veterinary environment. So that's the Veterinary Medicines Directorate, and that is there. They are an executive agency of DEFRA, so it is their job to to monitor any adverse effects, but to monitor the testing that's going on, and they finally give authorizations as to whether or not this product is suitable for the veterinary market. One of the issues that, that has become apparent is that there is, has historically been very little requirement for any serious environmental risk assessment for specifically for Parasite treatments for companion animals, for pets, and this is, is something that's increasingly causing concern at the moment because we are now finding out that, of course, some of these products are appearing in the environment. It's increasingly looking like they may be having adverse effect on the ecosystem, but there is very little control there. So um, the, the, the cycle, the sequence of events, there is an authorization process and you can't just come up with a product and sell it. It has to have authorization through the agency, a government agency. But I think we're in the early days of really assessing quite how serious the risks of, of some of those chemicals are.
0: So Leon, I have a dog. It's called Rio and I love it. And essentially when I find a tick or what have you, I use obviously an insecticide on the back of its neck. Obviously this is now feeling very much as if I'm playing God with my dog, but I'm not. And essentially Leon, what I want to know is obviously when we extrapolate that to a population standpoint of obviously all the release of potential insecticides into the environment, um, but in reality, that feels like such a small amount of chemical coming off our pets and into the riverine systems. And what I wanted to know was, what are the challenges with regards to measuring the impacts of such small quantities of chemicals in our environment?
3: I also have a cat who is called Snickers, and I also use pet treatments on Snickers, who, who kind of comes in with all sorts of other things, not just ticks. But essentially, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it is a tiny, tiny quantity, but that tiny, tiny quantity is still enough to have some form of risk that we need to then lock down and see, is it actually having an effect? So there's a difference between a risk and an actual impact. A risk is that it could happen. There's a likelihood. The actual impact of it is is what, what Guy's team does, is actually measure the actual impact of what's happening. From my side of things, it's really, really challenging to measure things at that low concentration. So for a pet parasiticide treatment like imidacloprid, for example, it's a really good example of one that was banned by the European Union for mass agricultural use, but is still used as a pet parasiticide. We can measure that at one nanogram per litre in riverine systems. It's that, that's one by ten to the minus nine of a gramme. It's really, really tiny. So a lot of our efforts has has really been focused on not only being able to measure that at that concentration level reliably, but to be able to do that at scale. So to be able to do that across an entire river or an entire country. So now that we have the technology to be able to enable that measurement to be made, it now needs to be scaled up. And that's where our challenge currently lies. Scaling up not only involves several of these these machines to measure it, but, but it also needs to be very fast in order to be able to do it in any realistic timescale. So for us, definitely, it's about assessing those impacts. It's about being able to measure it reliably at such a low concentration.
0: We've heard about how one would detect and measure such small concentrations of uh, environmentally present chemicals. And what springs to mind is the use of DDT in South Africa and the impacts that it's had on its bird life. Obviously, it was prevalent to reduce the presence of um, mosquitoes for malaria transmission. But essentially, what I was wondering, Guy, is... are new pesticides getting better or are they just as worse as the examples or historical examples of like DDT etc cetera, etc cetera, in our environment
1: so DDT is is one of the kind of classic examples really that that started our, our concern about pesticides so Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring book that she published in the 1960s triggered a lot of the environmental movement and it was concern about what we're doing to the natural environment and these unintended consequences of things like using these poisons such as DDT etc. Now you you mentioned South Africa and the collapses in in bird life, uh, particularly higher up the food chain, so predatory birds. Often what you see with things like these organochlorine chemicals such as DDT is that they biomagnify up the food chain and they also bioaccumulate in organisms. So biomagnification simply means that as you move up the food chain from, for instance, the mouse to the fox to the predatory eagle, that the concentrations and the toxicity of these chemicals increases. This other process called bioaccumulation is whereby the toxins increase in concentrations through time. So organisms that live for a long time, they ultimately receive a higher dose over their lifetime. What that means is that with these chemicals, that organisms that are long-lived and high in the food chain tend to be where the impacts are felt most keenly. And that's where we see population crashes and biodiversity loss. These are often very charismatic species of high conservation value. Top predators in South Africa, as you mentioned, peregrine falcons collapsed across the United States due to pesticide use. We also have declines in otter populations in the UK associated with many of these organochlorine pesticides. So these these pesticides are very effective in their job of, of killing their target organisms. But they also are very effective at having this collateral damage whereby they enter the wild food chains and have effects that ripple across many species. Now the new generations of chemicals are often improvements in, in some senses in that their residence time in the environment is often le- much less so they don't hang around for so long they don't necessarily always biomagnify but they're still extremely toxic and they can knock many populations of, of key species within the food web and trying to understand how that operates is still, is still a major challenge. Just. As an example, fairly fairly recently in in 2013, there was a spill of an organophosphate called chlorpyrifos in the River Kennet, which is the largest tributary of the Thames, and that caused large-scale collapse in invertebrate populations for about 15 kilometres down the river. And this was a tiny amount that entered the river, and this shows simply how effective these poisons are in very low doses as Leon was saying but of course when they enter the wrong environment where they're not intended their effects ripple and through the the entire ecosystem and they can have these so-called ecological surprises these unintended consequences that you would never predict from just doing laboratory studies. One good example of that particular case is that not only did we see collapses of invertebrates because this pesticide this insecticide entered the river but there were also indirect knock-on effects through the food web and one thing that was particularly intriguing which we picked up in that study was that there were algal blooms in the river so the river turned green from this huge increase in algae now if you went to the river and you looked at it and you thought this river is this river's got high amounts of algae, it's probably polluted, and the usual conclusion that you would draw would be that there's too many nutrients in the river. Now, what actually happened is that there was no change in the nutrient pollution in the river. It was the effect of the pesticide. The pesticide had wiped out the invertebrates that usually keep the algae in check. So what you see there would be a so-called indirect effect. You could come to very very erroneous conclusions if you don't think about how these species are connected to one another through the food web so if you knock out the things that control the algae you end up with an algal bloom which would make you think that you're looking at nutrient enrichment but in actual fact that was a pesticide impact and that's one of these new generations so although they don't persist and magnify up the food chain to the extent of the old ones they can still have very profound impacts across many species and the ecosystem as a whole
0: either Guy, Andrew or Leon, can you suggest small changes that individuals can make to minimise the impact of chemicals in our environment and on us? So one of, one
3: of the key things, I think, is that you, you need a cataclysmic change to your daily life to really make a change in your life in terms of its behaviour. And I suppose one of the really good examples, in, in I think, in my lifetime so far has been COVID. And essentially, uh, during that time, travel to and from work became quite difficult. There was a lot of working from home. There was a lot of setting up laboratory experiments that needed to be done. So I had to travel to work in a different way. So in that sense, transitioning to different modes of transport has made a, a huge difference. Difference not only in terms of my chemical impact on the environment through using buses and you know public transport or cars. Now I use a bike or I walk, it's healthier for me and it reduces the amount of air pollution in in, in London. So I think, you know, simple behavioural changes are are really, really important. Also, your own skills can come into good use. So uh, a a really good example within the environmental research group is the online app, which you can look at air quality in London on a real-time basis and maybe decide how best you'd like to travel to your destination on a daily basis, to minimize your exposure to, to to chemicals, particulate matter and air pollution. So in that sense, you, we can we can develop some technology to really, really improve our understanding of, of pollution and, uh, and get around it. I think in that sense, for, certainly for things like chemicals that we use, I would try to avoid chucking stuff in the bin. It really is something that needs to be avoided and it's a, such a simple change. And for a good example of that is pharmaceuticals or medicines, be they biocidal or otherwise. There is a mandate here, certainly in the UK, that unused medicines can be taken back to a pharmacy. And they are obliged to take them back and destroy them in an appropriate way. Do not flush them down the loo, do not put them in the bin, because that's one surefire way of these things getting into our rivers, ending up in landfill and leaching out of of those areas. So that will be a simple, simple change. Uh, You know, uh, it doesn't always have to be rocket science. It can be quite simple. And I suppose I would end on one thing saying that, you know, there's this great new term called citizen science. And citizen science really, I'm, I'm a scientist, but I'm also a citizen. Um, everybody listening to this is a citizen and is, has a responsibility to their environment. Along with our governments, along with our regulators, along with our manufacturers, we equally have some share in this in this solution. If you can get engaged in citizen science programmes or, 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 or come up with new ways to, to sort of engage citizens in, in scientific endeavours to understand the risks, in this case of chemicals, I think these are really, really worthwhile endeavours. Um, you'll find that often learning something uh, really, really can impact not just you, but communicating it to your family has a knock-on effect, and then it genera- generationally starts to build into our thinking.
1: Yeah, I- I'd just like to add to that as well, particularly the point about the citizen science approach. This is something that has grown massively in recent years, and it's incredibly important now, particularly for generating the data at scale that we need. And this can be relatively simple data. It can be collected by people who are not necessarily trained scientists. And just a good example of that, the case study I mentioned earlier about this chlorpyrifos spill in the river Kennet, which caused these algal blooms and and large-scale death of invertebrates, etc. That was actually picked up by citizen scientists uh, as part of a a larger riverfly partnership that spans the UK the local group called the Action for the River Kennet, they were the first people to to detect the impacts of this spill, and they were the ones who then alerted the Environment Agency. So it was citizens alerting the regulatory bodies. That was a great example. And then we worked hand-in-glove with the citizen scientists as, as academics to then trace and track the impacts of that particular chemical spill. So there's a really direct way to engage in, in generating the data that we need, and that's becoming increasingly important, especially as a lot of the routine monitoring by regulatory bodies is being cut. The citizen scientists are actually picking up a lot of the slack there and are becoming increasingly important. So if you want to engage directly, that's a great way to do it.
2: And it, again, looking at that from the perspective of, of vets as well, I mean, we in our clinical work, we're meeting people all the time. We are we are scientists that that the general public meet all the time, and and um, many members of the general public actually may not realise that they're surrounded by scientists all scientists all the time, and we are in the position of having conversations with people about science-related issues. And I personally think it's really important that that we use these interactions. And it may be we're talking about spaying someone's cat, but actually there are issues there because the anesthetic gases that we may be using are incredibly damaging for the environment. So there are always environmental issues to be be discussed we are in a time of pretty extreme crisis right now and I think it's really really important that particularly those with a scientific understanding of, of what's actually happening around us that seek opportunities to have those conversations and talk at any point in time to not only so that we don't only change our own behavior but everybody else is encouraged to actually think every time You do something, every time you spend money, every time you throw something away. These have environmental consequences and we're no longer in a time when we can afford to be cavalier about all this. We need to take care every every step of the way.